Well, we come in our exposition of the epistle to the Hebrews to chapter 11, and we have begun uh, to consider this chapter at verse 1, and we continue this morning with the Lord's help. We looked at the first half of this verse last Sabbath day, and this morning we turn to the second half, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we're focusing especially on these words. Now, faith is the evidence of things not seen. You'll all be well acquainted with the often repeated modern slogan. Three words, seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. And that is actually the exact opposite of what this text says. This text tells us about believing what is not seen. And really, the slogan itself is indicative of some fundamental trends in, in our own day, right? The expansion of science and pseudoscience and the idea that science itself is the sole source of knowledge. And yet we, we recognize, okay, science is engaged in empirical investigation. Science is limited to uh, the things that deal with the senses, what we touch and taste and smell and see and, and so on. And that there's uh, a whole mechanism through which the things of this world can be investigated through experimentation and other means. And all of that has a place, indeed, a wonderful place within God's economy. But to think to ourselves, or for anyone to think to themselves, that science is the sole source of knowledge is irrationality because of the very limitations of science. Science can account for all sorts of things that are beyond empirical investigation. As I've said before, science cannot account for numbers, the existence of numbers or propositions or the laws of logic, or the existence of other people's minds, or the fact that history didn't start five minutes ago with an implanted memory and a whole host of other things, right? There are significant limitations, much less be able to account for things like love. And ironically enough, science, limited to its own sphere, cannot even account for the scientific method itself. And so it is silliness, right? This we recognize that, that um, the limited scope of, of science, the focus uh, today, of course, with science is on the tools, which is appropriate, you know, on the technique, on all of the apparatus and models and technology that uh, is useful to science. But you know, science, modern science grew out of the fertile soil of men who were both scientists and Christians, indeed, who were both scientists and philosophers and theologians. And now, with all of the groundwork having been built in such a context, we merely tinker with the toys and trying to do more with what that has, has produced. And ironically, and I don't mean any prejudice um, by this, but scientists, in my experience, 
are some of the most philosophically ignorant people around. And it's no fault, and it's not um, no fault of their own in one sense, because they've had very little, if any, exposure or study of philosophical and theological uh, discourse, but it is to their disadvantage. And so, you know, the point is that we live in this atmosphere, and we come to a text like this, and the text is something of a bombshell, right? It is a boom of light uh, onto the, the dilapidated playground of, of the modern academy. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. And so we take this up this morning with the Lord's help. Um, for those who were not here on Wednesday night, uh, we were considering something supplemental, really, to our exposition of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. We were considering a text from Exodus 14, and if you didn't hear that, it would be helpful in fleshing out some of what we can't cover last week uh, and, and this week. But you'll, you will remember, I trust, that last Lord's Day we saw there's two parts to the to the, to the verse, faith is, first of all, the substance of things hoped for. Secondly, the evidence of things not seen. Each of those have two uh, components. And this morning, we're noting that, that faith is evidence. And this is describing the act or effect of faith. And then we have the object, which in this case is things not seen. And in this, we, we have really reinforced what was uh, an underlying, uh, underlying pursuit within the West at one time, uh, and that is really coming out of the Augustinian tradition, the idea of faith-seeking understanding. We're going to note two things this morning as we consider this passage. First of all, faith as evidence. Now, faith is the evidence of things not seen. Evidence obviously pertains to the understanding. It pertains to the understanding, to our minds. And so faith functions in many ways as the eye of the mind, eye of the, of the soul. Right? It is the, the, a spiritual faculty that gives to us spiritual sight. So you think of evidence, right? The, the testimony of eyewitnesses, for example. Well, that serves as evidence in a trial, even in a private conversation uh, with someone. Well, faith is such that it gives the knowledge of the truths of God's word. You think of, you know, later on in verse 19, here's Abraham who's told to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And Abraham, we're told in verse 19, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Abraham took the word of God, and he had knowledge and evidence and confidence in who God is, his sovereign omnipotence, his ability to raise even the dead, and the promise given to him with regards to the Son. And so there was his ability, therefore, to proceed in faith, accounting that God was able uh, to raise him up, even from the dead. So evidence is a convincing, indeed, the word is connected in the Greek to the idea of, of convincing. It's convincing, a convincing by way of argument and disputation in some 
contexts. You think, for example, of the elder's responsibility in Titus chapter 1 and verse 19, where it speaks of convincing the gainsayers. Same root word, right? Convincing the gainsayers. And so evidence, the faith as evidence is, in another sense, proof, if you will. It is proof of all that God has revealed to us, a clear demonstration of truth in the word so that the believer cannot think otherwise, right? This convincing, clear demonstration of the truth in God's word so that they're not able to think otherwise. First John chapter 5 brings this to the fore in verse 20, where it says, and we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true and eternal life. And so you think what happens in terms of God giving the gift of faith to an individual person, right? Here is a sinner who is by the power of the irresistible grace of the Spirit, converted, right? They're brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, in the conversion of a sinner, puts light into the soul. It's interesting because what are, we, what are, what are some of the first words that we read at the beginning of the beginning in Genesis chapter 1? God is creating the heavens and the earth. And one of the first things he says, let there be light. And so it is true in terms of the conversion of a sinner. They are new creation, Paul says. They are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And the Lord commands at the moment of their conversion, let there be light. He puts light into the heart and mind of, of souls. In chapter 8, verse 10 Quoting from Jeremiah, we hear about the, the new covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. Interesting language that's used there. I will, I will put, he says, I'm going to put it, the law into their mind. Well, where did God put the law in the Old Testament? He put it into the Ark of the Covenant. And where did he write? He, he's, he's going to write the law upon our hearts. Where did he write it? He wrote it upon the tables of stone, which he then put in the Ark, over which he sat. The Lord comes and he brings his word into the very inmost sanctum, the inner being of his people, over which he rules. Over which he rules. This is the Lord. You think of Ephesians chapter 5, where we read in, in verse 8 of, of that chapter, Ephesians 5 verse 8, for, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The Lord's bringing his people in the gift of faith from darkness into light. We read from 2 Corinthians 4, if you went back just a few verses before where we began in verse 4, we read, in whom, speaking of, 
those who are lost, those who are unconverted, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Right, so here is the Lord bringing faith as evidence, and he does so by bringing light into the hearts and minds of his people. You think of animals, children, and animals don't have a rational soul, right? They have sensory input, uh, they have instinct, and so on, but you think of man, and man is a rational soul. Man has endowed with, with reason. But then we can go a step beyond that, and there's the Christian, and the Christian is endowed with something beyond. He's endowed with faith. And of course, the Christian who's glorified in heaven is given vision, right? given sight. Faith is transformed in, into sight. And so we recognize faith as evidence. Therefore, it helps us to see that natural men, we left to ourselves, come with all sorts of prejudices due to the limitations, the absence of the evidence of things un unseen. And so the natural man, as Paul says, cannot discern. He can't see the things of God, the spiritual things that the Lord has revealed in his word and history and so on. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. So there's a refusal, there's a prejudice. I'm not going to receive them. For they are foolishness unto him, that's his conclusion, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Because the natural man is actually blind, incapable and unable of seeing the truth. And so the natural man is not left in this kind of murky middle of neutral territory where he thinks of himself as his own self-made man. And he thinks to himself, well, you know, I can look at everything and I have everything at my disposal and I can use the strength of my own mind and I can parse things out and I can decide for myself what I think and what is right and true and so on and so forth on all of the things that matter most. That's, that's make-believe, right? That's, that's a figment of imagination. That's a fairy tale. The natural man does not have all those things at his disposal, nor is he somewhat neutral. He is actually deliberately and determinedly opposed to the things of God and ignorant of the things of God and the deadness of of unbelief. And so faith is the evidence. Faith is the persuasive light that comes with an overpowering certainty in the soul of the, of the Christian, so that the Christian in the exercise of faith is not merely left with probabilities, is not merely left with what could be and may be and hope to be, but is left is left with certainty, and a certainty that actually leads to action, right? A faith which cannot be dead, but a saving and living faith which will be active in its exercise and all of the fruit that come from that exercise by the grace of God. There will be holy pursuits that are manifest in the life of the Christian as a result of the light that they've been given. 
the evidence that has been granted to them. And so faith in that sense is under the hand of God, full of efficacy, full of power. You know, people, people will say, well, I, I don't doubt the principles of Scripture. I don't, I don't doubt, doubt the doctrines of, of the Word of God. I, I, I pay tacit uh, acknowledgement to them and so on. But if they are without any or much conformity to the Word of God in their practice, then what they think is not true. It is not possible to say, I, I don't deny or doubt the principles of God's Word, which is another way of trying to say, I believe them. And yet for the, 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 the impact of those truths to not have a transforming influence upon one's own, own practice. The problem is that for the natural man and for the Lord's people in various degrees at times, sense the things we can interface with in this world that we can see and hear and touch and taste and feel and so on and so forth, sense all too often trumps God's word. And so we have God's word and we think, well, this is wonderful that we have God's word, but I need more. I need to see it. I need to feel it. I need to hear it. I need to be able to, to taste it. I, I, I know I have God's word. That's wonderful. But I need more. And what we're saying really is that sense is of greater weight and moment and significance and value than even God's word itself. You have the example that uh, the Lord gives to us, our Lord himself in, in, in Luke 16 You'll remember you have the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man goes to hell and Lazarus is in heaven uh, with Abraham and there's this interchange and um, he's, he's praying, you know, the, 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 the man in, in, in hell, the rich man is crying out that he would be given a drop of water, which he's denied. And he asks that somehow uh, that word would be sent from the realm of the dead the other side of the grave, back to his uh, loved ones. And that, that if that could be granted him, then someone coming from the dead would be persuasive to them, would bring them to see and understand the truth. He says, for I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham says, in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He's saying they have the revealed word of God. Let them hear the very word of God. And he says, no, 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 you don't get it. You're not, you're not following me. You know, but if one goes from the dead, then they'll repent. And you have those Powerful words, the last words of the text. And he said unto him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Right? This reinforces the idea that it's not just a matter of, you know, I, I need to be satisfied uh, to my own 
um, liking uh, to, to, to be led to see the, the things that I am called upon to believe and so on. He says, not so at all. You have the word of God. And this is true, right? This is true in, in terms of the preaching of the gospel. The Bible comes to us and God sets before us divine truths. And he says, I've created you. You've rebelled. You've been born in sin. You've lived a life in rebellion against me. I have a law. It's, it is, it is uh, unalterable. That law condemns you. The penalty for breaking the law is hell and damnation. And the gospel comes and says, I have a son. And he's been sent forth from heaven. And he has come as the God-man. And he has offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. And we have all these gospel truths. We're here as Christ atoning in the place as a substitute in the place of sinners. And we hear of his resurrection and ascension and all of the, the giving of the Spirit and all of these other things. And we have all of that proclaimed to us in the gospel, in the word itself. And the Lord calls us in the preaching of the gospel to hang everything on that word, to believe the gospel, to believe the word, to receive it as God has said it. And all of the temptations flood in. And you say to yourselves, well, I'm not sure. And you say to yourselves, well, I need something more than that. You know, uh, give, me, give me something that is to my liking in this area or that area. You know, help me to see that, that there's uh, some other form of, of proof that, that there is something after death and that there is a God who will hold me accountable and a, a heaven to be won, a soul to be lost in hell and so on and so forth, right? It's this, we're bumping up against the same thing. Whereas faith is evidence, evidence of things not seen. It's true in terms of our trials as well. The Lord comes and he says, I'll never leave you and forsake you. He says, I will be with you through it all, through the deepest valleys. He says, my love is as much and greater in the midst of these sorrows than all of the other circumstances in which you found yourself. Underneath are the everlasting arms. The Lord is gathering glory to himself through these trials. The Lord is working good for your soul that you cannot see through these trials. The Lord has his plan and intention to accomplish all sorts of things that you cannot see. And we have all of that coming to us in the word and God's bringing it to us. And then the, the temptations flood in. I, can't, I don't feel it. I, I can't see how this is good. I don't see how God's going to get glory out of this. I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. I don't see any of this stuff. I don't feel the, 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 the savor of the Lord's love in the present circumstances. You know, I'm groping about in the darkness and so on and so forth. Those are the temptations. But the Lord comes to the believer and gives faith, and faith gives evidence of things not seen. So that we can find ourselves like Job in, in chapter 23. When he's saying, I go forward, he's not there. I look to the right hand and he's not there. I look to the left hand and he's not there. What is he describing? He's describing a sense of absence, of abandonment, of isolation and loneliness. He's saying, I am under the hammer. I'm being ground to powder. I can't find the Lord. I can't see what it is that's taking place. And yet it's right there at that point. That he says, but I know that when I come forth, I shall be as gold. Right? That's the exercise of faith. There's what he couldn't see, 
coupled with what he did see and knew with certainty that the Lord knew that the way that he was taking and that when he was done, he would come forth as gold. Faith alters the believer's thinking, alters the believer's heart, transforms our affections. Faith alters the believer's life so that they are able to set their minds on things above, so that they are able to seek those things which are above, beyond the reach of eyeballs and ears and hands and so on and so forth. There's a transformation. Because by faith, they can see what is unseeable with the human eye. By faith, they know with absolute certainty what would be unknown through empirical investigation. Faith transforms things. And so the question comes, will we adhere to man and to the things that come from man and what man says and does to the, the things of this world? What, what, what do we know of man? What do we know of ourselves? All the inadequacies, all the frailties, all the mistakes, all of the ignorance, all of the limitations. Right? We think of all of the lies from our own heart as well as others. So we're going to adhere and hang everything on man, ourselves, and others. And that's going to be the determining factor that guides the life of, of, of our soul. Absolutely not. The believer hangs or they adhere to God and to his testimony because he cannot lie and because he cannot err and because he has no weakness but limitless strength and because he's all-knowing and sovereign and all-powerful and so on and so forth. The believer has absolute confidence in who he is, what he says, and what he does. Faith has evidence. The evidence is, is the evidence of things not seen. At the end of that section we read in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, those well-known words, for we walk by faith, not by sight. This really is what chapter 11 is all about. You know, the Lord says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And we say, okay, we understand the principles. We understand the concepts. We understand the theology. We understand the words. But the Lord says, but now come with me. Let, let me show it to you. Let me show you it in flesh and blood. Let me, show you, let me show you it in real time, real history, with real people. Let me show you what it looks like in its living reality. And that's what Hebrews 11 is. Right? It is showing us what it means to walk by faith, not by sight. It's showing us what it means for, for faith to be the evidence of things not seen. Of course we walk by faith and not by sight because we recognize and know irrefutably that sight gives us too limited a vision. You know, who wants to have something put over their head where all they can see is like an inch hole out the, out the, the front of their face? And they say, well, you, that's, live that way. Drive your, try, try driving your car that way or motorcycle that way. You know, try running through the woods 
like that. You'd be like, no way. I don't want the limitations of that. I want full field of vision. And this is the believer. We walk by faith, not by sight because it's too limited. You know, sight is, is unable to see so much that is essential to see. You know, children think this way. You know, someone is standing on a mountaintop and they're like, you know, look at those goats over there on the other mountain. You know, look at them, look at the color and texture and aren't the little ones cute and see how they hop and so on on the edge of the, the rocks and whatnot. And you're looking out there and saying, I, what are you talking about? I don't see anything. I don't see any of that. I just see like a mountain out there somewhere. I'm not seeing any of that. They say, oh, use my binoculars. Right? You put the binoculars up and all of a sudden, ah, now I see the shape and color and movement and everything else. We walk by faith, not by sight. Our whole life is to be regulated by what is unseen. In your business, in your recreations, in your family, in the church, in public life and private life, everything is to be regulated by what is unseen. And faith is the evidence of what is is unseen, right? This actually strengthens the feebleness of the believing heart. It strengthens the feeble, all that weakness, all that inadequacy, all that insufficiency. The Lord comes and in the gift of faith, he quickens the step of his people, right? He intensifies their zeal. He expands the depths of their love. He invigorates the feebleness of his people, as well as coming along with all manner of consolation and comfort. All of the comforts that the Lord provides through the sight of the unseen. It's amazing, right? It's, it's the Lord bringing us into the sunshine and out from under the clouds. And this is one of the advantages of some of our pilots. Every day is a sunny day for them. We who are, you know, tromping around on the face of the earth have many days, dark, heavy, black, clouds, rain, whatever, right? There, there are days that are dark and gloomy and heavy in the sky over us and so on. Pilots get in their plane and through the clouds they go and above the clouds they go. And now they're traveling for a few hours in the sunshine, right? The Lord is... The Lord does that. He, faith is the evidence of things not seen. He takes us, as it were, where we couldn't go otherwise. From underneath the heavy clouds brings us into the sunshine of his own countenance and grace and the ability to see as, as we ought to see. So faith is evidence. Secondly, the, the object is things not seen. Secondly, things not seen. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. It is the evidence that sees what is otherwise unseen. Faith sees what is otherwise unseen. In other words, we're, we're conversant with those things that are unseen by sense. The Lord is merciful in this to give us the ability to see what would be otherwise impossible. You'll notice that um, 
This is not referring to things that are make-believe. This is not hoping something's true or making yourself think that something's true in order to derive some benefit from it. Actually, a lot of modern science is that. But, but really what it is, we have to recognize, we speak about things that are unseen. They are, and they are unseen. They have to be, they have to exist first and be unseen before we are able to then see them. So we're talking about realities, what is real. We're talking about what God has revealed for us in his holy word. Those things that are invisible by nature. So God is invisible in his being. Angels are invisible to us. The soul is invisible. You can't cut yourself open a surgeon and, oh, well, here's the soul next to the you know, spleen or something else. So there's things that are invisible by nature. Evidence of what is unseen regarding God and angels and souls and so on and so forth. There are other things too. There are things that are unseen in terms of being beyond the distance of our ability to see. So that means, as we saw last week, things in the past as well. So the creation of the world is, is an obvious example and, and many others. But we also have the ability to see things ahead. So if you look at chapter 10, verse 34, it says, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. There's a sight of that better and enduring substance. It includes all sorts of other things. How about the benefits of affliction? These are not things that you can see ahead of time. What about even more basic, the supplies of divine grace? From beginning to end in the Christian life, all of those supplies of divine grace are themselves unseen. The fruit of them appear in our life and other things, but they're unseen. How about prayer and answers to prayer and a whole host of other things? You mean you think even open your Bible, the doctrines that are given to us, the doctrines that are given to us there, the doctrine of the incarnation, that the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, condescended to assume into, into, into personal union, into union with his person, a true human nature. And that as the God-man, he accomplished all the things that we have been told. Right? The incarnation is unseen. For that matter, the doctrine of the Trinity, that there is one God and there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. These things, doctrines are unseen. Even the, the reality and existence of heaven and hell, and we could go on and on and on. My point is to only give you little snippets, to give you little pointers, to give you little examples that expand the horizon of your thought to realize, oh, wait a second, take any of those categories that pastor just said, and we can add dozen to them without even trying. And you begin to, to realize how incredibly expansive things unseen are, how much there is that's there. I mean, you think just in terms of in temporal language, I said the past, right? We, we know that uh, the world was created by the word of God and so on in the space of six days. 
We know that because the Lord's revealed it to us. No scientist was there to take notes and do experimentation and observation and tell us about it. Right? We know that because God is, has revealed it to us. And for that matter, in thinking of the past, the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross, was raised from the dead, and ascended into heaven. You weren't there. Others were. Plenty were to see it. Hundreds were. But you weren't there to see it. You think of all that we're told about the prophets in the Old Testament, the, the apostles in the New Testament, and so on. These are things of the past. You think of the future, right? You think how the unbeliever is, is unable to see the, the future. You have language like that of Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 9. But he that lacketh these things, which include a number of graces, including faith, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten, so on. He cannot see afar off. So there's all sorts of things with regards to heaven, the judgment, the last day, the rewards that God has laid up for his people, hell and all of its terror, and things that are associated with that. These are all future. They're unseen. But there's a great deal that's unseen in the present as well. The fact that the Lord is our help in present trouble. That help is actually unseen in terms of empirical investigation. The help that we need in the present moment or the work of grace, the transformation that takes place in conversion or the ongoing transformation of sanctification. It's unseen to the human eye that a person is being made refashioned in various degrees more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, right? That process is unseen. And so much of what God is doing is unseen in the souls of men. I mean, Paul says our life is hid with Christ for a reason, right? The people at work, they can see your speech, they can hear your speech, they can see your actions, they can observe things about your behavior and character and lifestyle and so on and so forth, which are fruit of the work of grace in your soul. But they can't actually see your regenerated soul. And they can't actually see so much of who you are and so much of what your life consists of and so much of what God is doing in you. So that the spirit who's at work under the preaching of the word and through the other means that he's appointed, that work of transforming you, you look like you did on Friday. Outside, you haven't changed much. But inside, there have been transformations that have happened. It's unseen in the present moment. You think of faith in the midst of trials. The invisible supplies in the midst of visible dangers. So we can see the trial, we can see the affliction, the sickness, death, we can see all of the other problems that are, we're, we're facing at work and in family and other contexts. Those things can be seen. The dangers are visible, but the invisible supplies of grace are present as well. Right? You think about the mystery of providence. We talk about the mystery of providence, we use that language for good reason. Right? We're talking about God himself and his works. There's something incredibly mysterious about it. You know, providence, as we say, 
is best read backwards, like Hebrew words and sentences or Arabic words and sentences. It's best read backwards because there's so much mystery in the present moment with regards to it. I mean, Jacob has an injured hip and receives a divine blessing. Well, there's a lot in terms of his sense experience that registers with regards to the hip. He's halting. But not so with regards to the blessing that the Lord had given to him. Or you think of Joseph, what do we see? Right? We see his brothers throw him in a pit. We see his brothers sell him into slavery. We see him taken into Egypt. We see him betrayed in Potiphar's house. We see him sitting in prison. All that stuff we can see. But you couldn't see that what men were doing, evil things, God actually intended for good. That the Lord was actually advancing him each step of the way. That all those steps downward were, in the human eye, were actually steps upward to bring him to be the most favored. To not be a slave or a prisoner. To be second in command in Egypt. And to be the deliverer of his father and his house. And so on. Right? Faith is able to be evidence of things that are unseen so that we're able to walk beyond the field of merely what we, we see, right? You have outward, outward, there's all the afflictions. Those are visible, but inward, can you see the love of God being shed abroad in your soul by the Holy Ghost? Can the communion that's had with Christ, the sweetness of that communion be seen with the physical eyes? No. But faith does. Faith knows it. Faith has the persuasive, convincing proof of these things that are unseen. It also works the other way. You know, we often turn to trials, and understandably. Faith is also evidence of things not seen with regards to prosperity. Because in times of benefit and blessing and advance and encouragement and things are great, your health's never been better, and you got a bunch of money you didn't expect, and you promotion, a job, and a new house, whatever else it is. Times of prosperity, there's a lot we can see with our physical eyes. But the Lord gives us faith to see what's unseen. We can see through prosperity. We can see it for what it really is and for what it is not. And the, the, the mind, the excitement, the affections, the priorities, the time, everything else that responds to this pros prosperity is hemmed in by what is unseen. Wait a second. This thing isn't going to hijack my soul. I'm not going to all of a sudden begin living for the things of this world as if they are what matter most. They're a pittance. You know, you're given enormous inheritance by a dead uncle that you didn't know. And you're able to look at it and say, as I like to say, chump change. Because my whole world revolves around this enduring, far better substance that the Lord has promised to his, his people. You think of the way in which faith interfaces with God's promises. God's promises. There's, there's a sense, if you will, there's a sense in which God has obligated himself to us. There's a sense in which God has, if you will, indebted himself to his people. 
In this sense, he's, he's pledged something that he must deliver on. He must stand by. He will stand by and cannot but deliver. And so faith recognizes that. Faith recognizes the absolute certainty, the irrefutability, and has confidence and is persuaded of all that the Lord has promised. It's true. And let God be true, though all men be liars. His word is true to me. You think in times of desertion, especially as I noted in Job 23, where the Lord has decided to hide his face from us. And it, it, it seems to us as if all is dark. And yet there is the Lord hiding his faith in his inscrutable wisdom. Here is the Lord actually bringing smiles and blessing. That if we had faith as the evidence of what is unseen, we would be able to peer into. You see it with Mary. They're there at the wedding of Cana. And she comes and she's, she's in the tizzy because of this wine business. And, um, and she comes to, to the Lord Jesus. He says, what, what do I have to do with this? Jesus says to her, he rebuffs her. What do I have to do with this? This isn't my time. He gives her, he gives her a negative answer. Mary turns around and says, go fill the water pots. He'll do it. Right? There seems to be as if the Lord's hiding his face, but she saw through that. She saw who he was. She knew who he was. And she knew, therefore, what he would do. And so in the face of that rebuff, she says, go fill the water pots. Watch this. And he turns the water into wine, as you well know. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, spoke about how there is nothing that offends man more than the, than the simplicity of his ordinances. Flies in the face of everything that man thinks and loves. Nothing offends man more than the simplicity of his ordinances. You know, preaching with all of its simplicity, this is always taboo in every age. You know, the unaccompanied singing of psalms, the sacraments, prayer, these simple ordinances, instead of what is gaudy and outwardly glorious and spectacular and so on and so forth. This offends man. But the Lord has given to us bare, simple ordinances in order that we might see him and that he might have all the glory in them and through them. You think of death. You come to the end. You're drawing near and the bands are being loosened. And there's all sorts of potential trials there, right? Fear, panic, and difficulty, pain, all that sort of stuff that comes with it. And at death, sense, sense can become lost, right? What, what we can actually see, what we can actually grab a hold of in terms of our sensory experience, that, that's fading away. And yet faith is able still as the evidence of things not seen. To stand in the midst of all that and see through it and beyond it and in it. To recognize that our funeral is the funeral of all of our sin. That our funeral is the funeral of all of our sorrows. That the Lord is coming to fetch another one of his lambs. To bring them into the fold. Right? Faith is able to see these things. To see life in the face of death, to see 
the confidence of the resurrection in a body that is preparing to be laid in the grave. All of our murmuring and complaining and fussing and whining and so on, our trembling and fears, is the, is, is the result of not seeing what is unseen. It is little faith, the failure to exercise faith, to grow in faith, to have faith as the evidence of things not seen. For some of you, it manifests in other ways. You, 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 you're only going to believe if you can feel it. You're only going to believe if you can feel it at the present hour. God says, this is who I am. This is what I'm, I do. This is what I've promised to you. This is where it's going. This is what I'm doing with you in the present circumstances. And you will not, you will not put your confidence in it. Because I can't feel it. I don't feel like the Lord is with me. I don't feel like uh, the Lord is willing to save and cleanse me from my sins or deliver me from the wrath to come. Or I don't feel as if, you know, I really am laying hold of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. Or I don't feel as if, you know, these promises which I'm hearing but come to me in such a sterile way. I can't, I can't see that the Lord is present and that he's doing, working good and so on. It's, it is a failure to rely entirely upon the word. Just tell me what the book says. Just give it to me straight. Thus saith the Lord. That's enough. That's what faith wants. Thus saith the Lord. We have feelings and thank God that those feelings can be sanctified and that he uses them in wonderful ways. But faith is distinct from feelings. And the fact is that the preeminent place for feeling is actually in the world to come. The preeminent place for feeling is the world to come. Not absent here, but it's preeminent place. It's there that we have joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's there that we have basking in the love of God, unbroken, unhindered, always expanding. It's there that we have all of the riches of benefit in, in our in, in resurrected experience uh, before, before the Lord. There are times here where the Lord says, faith without feeling. Believe on the warrant of my word. On the warrant of my word itself. Trust it. Do not be those who say, I'll only trust God when I see it for myself. You're only to trust God when you see it from himself in his word. He sends, he sends us his word and it's, it's seed sown in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the soul. You know, when you go out and bury those seeds in the spring here shortly, you can't see anything. The seed's gone. All you see is dirt, 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 dirt. But you know that with water and everything else, sunshine, there's going to be fruitfulness that comes from it, flowers that come from it, and what have you. There's going to be a harvest that comes from it. Christian walks by faith. You know, people will work very hard without weariness for worldly gain at their job. They'll stay up super late, get up early, do long hours, 
really exert themselves, study, investigate, do all sorts of extra stuff, you know, knock themselves out, wear themselves thin in order to succeed at their work. But when it comes to prayer, meditation, attendance at the house of God, what a weariness it is. What a weariness it is. It's, a, it's an inability to see the unseen. The exercise of faith enables us to see in those things what our eyes can't see, like the things at work. And that invigorates the soul to say, here is what is glorious and great and wonderful and important and significant and eternal and everlasting and so on and so forth. You think even of our, our doctrinal integrity, you know, holding fast the truth that the God's given to us, walking in the light that the Lord's given to us. Right? The Lord gives us truths in his word. Why is it that some people say, you know what, I'm going to go on a binge and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to entertain doubts about this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start thinking about errors that contradict this. Well, the truth is that they're usually... Usually there are other things going on in life and it's their life, their morality, their character, their own fleshly desires that drives the change in their minds about truth. Right? It is what we want that so often influences what we believe with regards to, to error. So the point is you have no such luxury. The light that's been given to you, the truth that God has given to you in his word, you are to receive. Evidence of things not seen. And you, 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 you must hold fast to them. You think of, um, despite all that the world says, in John chapter 20. In John chapter 20 and verse 29, we're told this. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Faith laying hold of the truth as it is in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You know, the stress in the Christian life really comes with understanding the book not the consequences that flow from understanding the book. We need the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We need what Ephesians 1 describes, where Paul's saying, okay, Ephesus, let me tell you exactly how I pray for you. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Right, we, we need to pray, Lord, give us the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Enable us to see the truth. Most people, I've said this before, most people derive most of their stress by the consequences. If I believe this, if I embrace this truth or embrace this practice or embrace this other thing, what's it going to cost me? Well, it's going to cause a problem with the family. It's going to cause a problem with this, that, and the other thing. I'm going to... All these different consequences. 
foolishness. All of the stress should be transferred to getting clear on what the Bible says. That's where we're stressed out. I got to know what the Lord, what the Lord's will is, what the Lord's revealed word is. And once he's given me that, nothing else matters. No stress. Like whatever the consequences are, who cares? Not, not a care in the world about what will come from it. I know that I have the truth, evidence of things not seen. We need to think deeply so that our souls are rooted in the scriptures themselves, that we're sinking our roots deep down in to the word of God. Our faith is rooted in him. We need sanctified affections as well. In Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, which you know well, we're told in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now, there's lots to be said about that verse, as you well know, and you've heard many sermons on them. But it is tied to this idea of sanctified affections. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. A clear eye has to have a clear heart. If your affections are actually oriented towards sinful things, if your affections are actually tied to the things of this world, that what excites you and invigorates you and the thing that you think about and dream about and talk about and so on and so forth are the things of this world, you're going to have cloudy vision. We need our affections clear, pure before the Lord in order that our eyes might be as well. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 11. For this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Right? This is in the whole context of the man of sin, the son of perdition, and so on. But what's happening? They, 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 they have this deceivableness of unrighteousness, and they're rebelling against the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I'll send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Things not seen. Faith is evidence of things not seen, so that the believer does have a rooted, grounded, persuasive, overpowering confidence proof in those things that are unseen, so that we know with certainty, with greater certainty, some things that are unseen than we do things that are seen. We tend to do the reverse, but, but faith gives us this, the ability to have greater confidence in things that are unseen than we do in the things that are seen. This is what makes sense of the Christian life. This is what makes sense of Hebrews 11. When, when, when Moses sees the house of Pharaoh and all the glory, glory that comes with it, and he sees the hardship and suffering and afflictions of the people of God, he sees all that. But he also, by faith, is able to see what none, none his eyes could never see. And that is the glory. He sees the invisible God. He sees Christ. And he sees the recompense of the reward. He sees the greater treasure, which absolutely throws the treasures of, of Egypt into the dustbin and says, I want that. 
I'm going to direct my steps in faith and live for that. And I'm more confident of that than the perishing riches of Egypt. Remember, they were looted on, the, on Israel's way out, and then they were drowned in the Red Sea. Abraham or Moses' faith was well-placed in terms of seeking those things which are unseen and above. So the Lord calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Let's stand for prayer. O Lord, our God in heaven, we come to the one who is great in faithfulness. And we pray, give us eyes to see, O Lord, thy glory, that among all the other things that have been shown to us, demonstrated, proved to us, that are yet unseen, give us this one thing most of all, that we would behold the glory of our God and worship in the beauty of thy holiness all our days and all eternity. O Lord, increase our faith and do so so that the glory and honor and praise might be unto thy name alone. We ask it for Jesus' sake.